If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you through our Patreon. This episode of Green Dreamer is also supported by the Plant Your Change movement, which plants a tree on your behalf every time you use your own existing debit or credit card, simply by rounding up your change for you. Yes, we should keep pressuring the big corporations and governments to do their part and be accountable to their contributions to land degradation and deforestation. But we are at an all-hands-on-deck moment where every tree consciously planted will count, and if our change can be rounded up just a little bit once to three or four times per day for our daily purchases. Well, let's just say three times 365, we could each contribute to planting up to or more than a thousand trees just in this next year. The program collaborates with two established reforestation nonprofits, Arbor Day Foundation and Eden Projects, which we've donated to before as well. So if you want to join or learn more about Plant Your Change, you can head to greendreamer.com slash plantyourchange. This will be linked in the show notes of this episode as well, but again, it's greendreamer.com slash plantyourchange. Like people create maps to communicate what they're interested in. And the map makers traditionally were the ones with who held either the money or the power or the expertise to create those maps. The classic example of that is that uh, Europeans were making maps of North America where they could write all over them, Terra Nellis, there is nobody here. And of course, that was the biggest lie of the millennium. And it created a narrative and an understanding that was so wrong that it continues to have its impact on people today. That was Brioni Penn, a naturalist, mother, writer, artist, and a citizen. Brioni has been trained as a geographer, which she noted is probably the closest Western science comes to an integrated worldview that looks at our relationships to the Earth and each other. I found this to be really fascinating because I've always personally been interested in multidisciplinary learning and seeing how various fields of expertise come together to enable us to see the world in a more holistic way. So in this episode, we're going to talk about some potential limitations of specialized fields of Western science in conservation, 
We're also going to talk about what community maps are and how the maps that we've been taught to understand geography with have both shaped and been influenced by our cultural and societal values and more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I was really lucky to grow up on the edge of a hill that was largely undeveloped. And so I was, I basically got raised by the hill. <laughs> and it was, it's a really unique ecosystem in that it's the only coastal grassland on the coast of British Columbia. So if you imagine there's, people think of temperate rainforests on the, on the west coast of the Pacific. Well, this was sort of a grassland savanna that was right in the middle of, of the temperate rainforest. And its uniqueness, its beauty really is what grabbed me as a child because I could escape. I had three brothers and, you know, there were two of them were older than I was and they would tease me a lot. And so the natural world was just my sanctuary. And it, and it was beautiful because it was these big wildflower meadows. And I say wild with a slight pause because as I got interested in the flowers, I realized that actually this was an old garden that had been untended for since kind of colonization. I took a real interest in wildflowers as a child and because I was named after a wildflower and so was my mother and so were my aunts and it's kind of a European tradition to name your daughters after flowers and so flowers was my entry into the natural world and also into the the ideas of landscape diversity and cultural landscapes and 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 then deeper into ideas of well, where are the people that used to tend these gardens and why aren't they here and why aren't they represented and what's and so all those questions were kind of led from that original just sheer sanctuaries, beautiful sanctuary, looking out over this hill amongst these wildflowers and, and feeling safe. So you say that geography is probably the closest Western science comes to an integrated worldview that looks at our relationships to the earth and to each other. In working towards our collective sustainability, why is it important to have this integrated worldview? And by contrast, what are the limitations when we rely on some of the other fields of Western science alone in informing how we implement ecological conservation? Um, that's a great question. I think that the the entry into geography for me was because it was the only discipline that I could take all these strands that I was interested in. And as I said before, I was interested in the ecology of these these really what turned turned out to be very endangered ecosystems. It also took me into a study of of the historical basis for the colonization, uh, the, the genocide, the, the patterns of systemic racism, and 
It also took me into the study of climatology and the role of these ecosystems in withstanding drought and being the kind of place that might be essential for our survival because these little coastal savannas were were actually drought resistant ecosystems. So all these things that I was interested in my place, and I was really interested in place, I was interested in my home, I could pursue in geography and in other disciplines I couldn't. So for example, if I was going to do biology, I would be studying, you know, biological systems, but not necessarily the the story behind it or the conservation necessarily or the the historical context and and cultural context if i was going to just be studying history i wouldn't be able to study the 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 ecological aspects of what i was interested in so place and geography is essentially interested in place was my entry point and i think that that the fact that these other disciplines, because they're they're siloed and they're isolated, have become real obstacles, both in the universities and our way of thinking and our Western worldview. We we simply don't integrate these things. It's for some reason it's served us for a while because we can go down very narrow, problem solving, very linear thinking paths. But for our ultimate survival, we need an integrated worldview that's really keeping all the pieces of the, the puzzle in the game and understanding that you, you sacrifice one and you sacrifice all of them. And I think, in fact, that most of the disciplines where you get a lot of innovative thinkers in the, in the, in the sort of distinct disciplines are moving into interdisciplinary research. So I think ultimately... Geography is the closest, I think, it comes to an indigenous holistic worldview. And I think that there is a tendency now that you, you cannot solve problems without that approach. And I think the other thing that I found in geography is that it, it was a kind of forgotten discipline in a sense. And it didn't have the same high profile in, in university departments. It was kind of a little backwater. And, and you tended to get people that were um, more interested in, you know, the, the, the emphasis on the sort of big big papers and, and, and that whole system of competitive, aggressive, academic publishing and, and was really not there. So it, 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 there was a role for people like me, you know, to kind of like explore ideas and explore interdisciplinary ideas. Right. It sounds like a lot of the other fields of sciences, they take on a view that is much more of a close up regarding what's happening. And I guess what we miss out on when we only focus on these more myopic lenses is the context so I feel like a lot of solutions, for example, for climate change are currently driven by the sciences that take on a more close-up view, but it's so important to contextualize those quote-unquote research findings to each place and take into account this unique bioregion, the cultures that are here, the people that are here, and so forth. Well, I, I think that's exactly that's exactly what where people are at because and I can give you a very specific example is that when we start looking at my little part of the world 
the the solutions to climate change are in cultural survival because in that in the honoring and the recognition and the understanding of of traditional uses of that land are the answers for how that ecosystem is going to thrive and and continue to do the very the very things that we need for climate change we need to continue to keep healthy ecosystems to sequester carbon and how do you do that well it turns out that in our coastal douglas fir forests the retention of soil moisture is everything to keep that health that forest healthy and with soil moisture comes the retention of shrub layers and shrub layers require people pruning them to increase their their capacity to photosynthesize and suddenly you get down into very specific carbon equations about how you're maximizing the ability of this ecosystem to sequester carbon to hold moisture to retain biodiversity to prevent fire even and and to do all that you need to understand how these traditional land use systems worked what were the cycles of the season how how are people managing these ecosystems managing these shrubs maybe doing some very minimal low severity burns to uh which sounds counterintuitive but these are actually the details that actually keep this ecosystem healthy and without with the falling away of traditional land use patterns has led to these very modified unhealthy forests higher risk of fire uh, lower sequestration of carbon higher risk of flooding, higher risk of drought, and and declining biodiversity. So just in that one little example, that big longer, long-term view, the, the, the geographical, the an indigenous worldview on it, is the solution. And and it's only that all these other disciplines in my particular part of the world, all these other disciplines have finally come to this realization through the long route where you know it's it's kind of I mean it's, I just imagine my you know a lot of the elders that I work with I mean they just are so patient because they just sit there and they know that one day um, <laughs> all of us will get to the same conclusion and it, that is also that in that teaching is is the is part of the solution too because there's the notion of how do you pass on these types of skills so that you are keeping people as stewards on the land. And then what are the side effects of that? Well, it turns out that when people are stewarding the land and working with plants and and food systems, traditional food systems that are actually also long-standing ecological relationships with, with the migratory birds or the amphibians, well, suddenly they've widened their community of friends and their they're happier, they're outside, they're less anxious, and suddenly all the social problems start curing. Um, and you're, you've got kids that are happier, you know? And so a lot of the work that I've been doing is in restoration, working with trying to bring the Western scientific community together with and, 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 and create some bridges back to the indigenous communities who've been saying this forever. But to see the to see the sort of mutual benefits that we can all do, whether it's you know preparing for the fires or improving the the quality of life for their children. 
Before we go into your writing, I know you're also an artist who's pioneered what's called community mapping. So what is it that you focus on in illustrating these maps and how do they contrast with the more conventional ways of going about map making? Well, mapping began because I I started wanting to make maps of this place that I love, which is the hill. And, And I was very, very lucky to have parents that had been strongly influenced themselves by the British arts and crafts movement, in which was a somewhat, it's kind of like, as I'm describing the sort of Western manifestation of, of people struggling to try and create this, this sort of integrated worldview. And so when I grew up, there was a map, an illustrated map that my mother had put up on her kitchen wall that was of a place that she really loved. And, and in it were all the things that I could relate to as a child, you know, that, that had meaning. And it differed from every single other map that I'd ever seen. Because, you know, the maps that you look at in everyday life, it's maybe, you know, capital cities or, or gas stations, you know, along the way or oil fields of, of Canada, like pipelines, like people create maps to communicate what they're interested in. And the map makers traditionally were the ones with who held either the money or the power or the expertise to create those maps. The classic example of that is that uh, Europeans were making maps of North America where they could write all over them, Terra Nellis, there is nobody here. And of course, that was the biggest lie of the millennium. And it created a narrative and an understanding that was so wrong that it continues to have its impact on people today. So my, my interest as a geographer was to work on maps that were drawn by people who didn't normally draw the maps and to try and give power to the people, you know, other voices. And we, I was really lucky to, when I was doing my PhD, to come across a British project called the Parish Maps Project, run by two wonderful people that did exactly that. They got people in each each small little, they're called parishes in Britain, but they're small jurisdictional units, sort of like a neighbor, almost like a neighborhood. And they got the, each parish of, of Britain to create a map and, and brought this together in an atlas. And it's just a phenomenally beautiful project. And it spoke to all the things in the diversity, the richness, the biological richness, the cultural richness, the just all the things that had meaning to people in these different neighborhoods. So I thought, oh, yeah, we need to do this in in Canada because I'm so tired of looking at maps of, you know, timber to be cut (laughs) and lines to be dug and, you know, rivers to be dammed kind of stuff that I was growing up with. And so that's what started the community mapping. And we did – so when I came back to the islands where I live on, we did a community mapping project where we involved I think uh, well um, probably almost a thousand people scattered across all the different islands contributing to these and then we integrated artists with historians with so we we brought everyone together so part of it was process so a historian might never have sat down with an ecologist or a biologist might never have sat down with a geologist and, and and it was a way to bring these 
these sort of siloed disciplines together in a process that allowed them to see all the connections because when you start when you start overlaying things i mean that's when these patterns of of um and these you know aha moments it's where the real richness in 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 understanding comes is in these these rich overlays of worldviews and 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 different disciplines so that was the basis for it and it we created a, a sort of a manual and that manual went all over the place and i think it's taken on different uh, manifestations in this digital age, but it, it continues. It's, I mean, I wasn't, obviously, there was lots of people having the same kind of moment. And so the community mapping movement, I think, really created some, some new tools for communities to express not only what they loved, but what they cared for, what they wanted to see protected, what they didn't like. Uh, we worked on an incredible... Uh, there was a mapping project where it was mapping areas where women didn't feel safe. So it, it, it had a lot of manifestations and um, I think it's still continues to be a really, really interesting tool. This is all really profound. And I also wonder how our worldviews might be shaped differently if we grew up learning from these sort of community maps, as opposed to the more conventional maps that, we're exposed to in our schoolings and how that might change our perspectives on the world and help shape the things that we value as a society. Well, I believe so. It, it's very difficult to, I've tried most of my life to get these things into curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's where I go back into the, my political lens and historical lens. There's nothing as political as curriculum. And and every time we would get something in and be confirmed at the, at the curricular level, another level of government would come in and just straight say, right, we're going to change curriculum. And they would bring their agendas in and their maps of, I mean, I've got a very specific example to that is it was essentially captured because suddenly there was funding through the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers and they went and generated an entire curriculum about for schools where to place your pipeline it wasn't wow. i mean not even should we place a pipeline but where to place the pipeline and suddenly there was grade nine classrooms across canada getting workshops with people arriving with these big maps and these discussions all around okay where would you place a pipeline and the discussions about okay well you want to avoid the rocky areas and you know maybe not put the like limit the number of wetlands you're going to put them through, but let's, this is where we're going to place them. So pedagogically, it was probably the worst piece of resource curricula uh, materials I've ever seen in my life. It was that the entire organization of, of geographers had been pretty much sullied by this. And, and it was because the, you know, the organization was relying on funding and the funding was reliant on, it's, you know, delivering of these, these curricula. And, and I think that's why an integrated understanding of these human processes and systems and, and ecological systems, economic systems, political systems, you begin to, to see these patterns and it's, well, how do you, how do you change them? And so my answer to that is, I thought, well, I'm a geographer, I'm going to blinking well get on this 
whatever, their little society and whatever, and start to try and affect change. And, and start pointing out the failure of this as, as a pedagogical tool because the first thing that you have to ask in any situation for critical thinking for children is, you know, well, have we even asked the question of, have we even gone back to the concept of energy and, and climate change and looked at all the other maps of indigenous rights and their, you know, traditional uses of these lands and, 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 and all the, all the multiple layers that were, had just been discarded for this very simplistic discussion of um, where to place a pipeline. I mean, it was shocking to me. So I, I think that is, I mean, for me, it's, you know, I, I jump around a lot. That's sort of a classic geographer's sort of prerogative is to, move around but i think it's it, it's understanding where you can be strategic and where you can lend a voice in a conversation to just at least raise the the awareness in people that are more single focused that there are other there are other worldviews there are other disciplines that have something to offer this situation or this particular um answer to a problem i mean engineers are 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 another group that really would benefit from from really understanding that there are ways of solving problems that aren't don't just involve technical engineering type solutions and and I think you know that would be my 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 cry would be for everyone to to have a second sober thought and bring in alternative worldviews. Well, given how important place-based knowledge is, especially as uh, we're working on addressing our biodiversity loss, climate change, ecological degradation, and social inequities, I really hope that we can work to get more community maps into our educational systems. So moving on to your writing, Stories from the Magic Canoe is a more recently published book that you helped to work on. It was told to you by Wahaid, also known as Cecil Paul, who's a First Nations elder from the Killer Whale Clan. You also wrote his biography in Following the Good River. For you as a white writer facilitating the storytelling from a First Nations man, I'm curious what sorts of internal work you had to do or unlearnings you might have gone through in order to be able to sideline your personal identity and worldviews to fully step into his shoes. The The origin of the book was started with a friendship and that friendship emerged, emerged in, in, in ways that was really a 
for me, it was a process of understanding my history that I had no idea about. So it was someone who over 25 years, actually 28 years now, mm-hmm. was able to, through storytelling, was able to take somebody like me, classic European colonial background. My family were all early colonists, all had, you know, terra nullis worldviews, all all had the, the classic stereotypes and stigmas and, and, and racism inherent in, in any kind of colonial class. And, and essentially what I experienced over those 28 years was this, this ability to, to break down all these previous stereotypes and narratives and, and come to a place of, of much better understanding so Cecil himself, Wahed, he was, because he went through the residential school system, he was never taught to read or write. And his stories have, I've watched him all through his life, telling stories to people and seeing these profound shifts in people's understanding and awareness. And so over the years, I had recorded those stories. And then, then, then there came a point where I said, you know, do you want me to transcribe these stories? And then you've got a collection of these stories because as you know, anyone a good storyteller knows you've, you've created a, a series of stories that have been masterly refined over the years. And they make this incredible collection of really understanding a period of history that people really don't know a lot about, but and as have also not, heard it in a way that is told by such a masterful storyteller they've they've read some books maybe if they're very committed on on post-contact the last hundred years in in my particular part of the world in British Columbia but they they don't really know at, at an emotional level what went on what genocide really looked like so um Cecil's Cecil and his family were fully supportive so this is this is their this is his story I'm I essentially was the the transcriber and also Cecil was very adamant and this is why it's a joint project Cecil's understanding of of the way that we think is that there's always a hesitation to to simply accept what people have heard from from a storyteller because in in our and this is this will reinforce kind of some of the points I was making earlier is that he said I want facts dates and evidence as footnotes so that you you're, the story that you tell will be something that will give comfort to people that what they're hearing is true and evident evidence because we are an evidence based society at least those people that are are you know, the ones that are open to understanding what happened are more comfortable with evidence, even if they don't want to admit it, but we all love evidence. We all like these facts. And, and so his his request from me was that I prepare the notes, the documents, the historic records, the evidence, and the context, what was going on from the Western perspective for each of his stories. So it was a collaboration of bringing his powerful emotional storytelling about 
the emotional costs to himself, his family, and the land, together with a, a kind of a dry historical referenced series of essays in endnotes that describe what was actually happening. And I think because he's his ability to 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 see people for where they're at, you know, kind of you you've got to approach people where they're at. And I do and I do think that he's been very successful in his his belief about that at our stage or in, in our in this stage of our cultural development as colonists and, and trying to understand reconciliation, it's very helpful for us to be able to have both worlds to feel, you know, oh yeah, okay. Okay, if it says it in the documents, then it's true. Because the way that Cecil would tell it would be would be different. It might be metaphorical. It might be left a little bit unsaid. Um, all this great storytelling traditions would be brought up, but those aren't necessarily used, and people don't understand them as evidence. You know. Mm. So I, I hope that does that answer your question. Yeah, totally. And I know Wahid is one of the last fluent speakers of his people's language. Previously, with the nonprofit Cultural Survivals Executive Director Galina Angorova, we talked about the relationship between native language, cultural diversity, and biodiversity. In that, a lot of the ancestral knowledge we need to safeguard and restore various bioregions on our planet can be lost with that fading and sometimes erasure of indigenous language and culture. So, from what you know, what has the erosion of his people's language and culture meant for him and the Kidlo? And what messages has he shared with you as things that he'd like to pass on to the future stewards of their lands and of our greater planet? Cecil's messages are are because of his understanding of communicating in, in an oral tradition are are simple. They're, they really are very simple in that when you read his stories, these aren't stories that you'd find they're, they're contemporary stories. They take old storytelling formats, but they turn them into a contemporary story. So we aren't getting the benefit of, of thousands of years of cultural knowledge in detail. Where, but his language, for example, is full of it. It is, you know, it's one of the great tragedies. And I think people like Wade Davis, who's a Canadian ethnobotanist has written very well about this. And, and and many of your you know speak some of the people in your podcast have spoken beautifully about this, but I think what Cecil recognized is that people aren't even there yet. They're not at the stage where they can start delving deep into the the the, the beauty and the detail of the language that reflects complex ecological processes and the things that we need to learn how to survive. Where he began is with a welcome, and that welcome was that a welcome into an idea that his his granny had given him is that the, what the world needs is it as it's lurching into these uh, series of crises is what the khnaxiala people used to 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 describe when they were having difficult like they th this is an environment that has got landslides and avalanches and huge snow and big floods and 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 tsunamis and and uh, glaciated landscapes and constantly shifting and changing landscapes. What they what they understand is that in order to be resilient 
for these kinds of changes in a landscape is to work together. And that the canoe is a very good metaphor for working together because you're all in the canoe together. You're in a tree together. You're in a tree that has been carved into a canoe together. And and that you're in a, a magic canoe because this canoe can expand as big as it needs to get in order to bring people in to work towards being resilient towards these changes. So the the bulk of the stories are are really centered around how Cecil brought people into his magic canoe to fight some of the, the, the most egregious aspects of colonization, industrialization, attacks on his territory by logging, huge hydroelectric projects, oil and gas, you name it, every single kind of large corporate resource has arrived in his in his watershed or his wehues um, and tried to, to claim it in some way. And he's been successful and his community been successful. He would always emphasize that it's not him, but his community have been successful because they get in the magic canoe and they invite others into the magic canoe to do many things. First, to see the beauty to slow down and to wash their eyes in the, in, the, in the river and see things a little bit more clearly. And these are all beautiful metaphors for what I've been talking about, you know, in a whole lot of more words. Um, and then the magic canoe is about inclusivity. He doesn't believe we're going to solve climate change primarily just with an indigenous worldview. It's going to take all of us. And when people feel welcomed into, into an idea you can feel their body chemistry change like in the room. It just like you, because people, I think he, he reaches and these traditional teachings reach a, a part of our humanity that we all know to be true, that we, we are all connected and we are not going to survive unless we work together. We know that. I think our humanity understands that fundamentally because the problems that are ahead of us are so complex and so his messages are sometimes they're just about how to understand beauty. Sometimes they're about how to work together and provide us with metaphors of how to work together. Sometimes there's stories about how to understand the power inequities and, and have empathy for why people do certain things when we, we don't understand why they're doing them. But once you've unpacked all the you know the the political and and sort of power inequities then you start to understand it and he says and he tells these stories in very simple ways and he also uses elements of his language with words that we don't even have the likes of because they're words that are very they're emotionally and they're they're about acts that also have an emotional intelligence about them and and just for an example i love the one which is lagolas which is about sometimes you need to pull the canoe into an eddy and and rest and just slow down and and kind of twirl around in a circle for a while well imagine being able to have a word like that for our kids during this time of covid you know this is kind of a lagolas we've all kind of pulled into an eddy and we might be spinning around and around, but that's okay because that's an important part of the journey. Because you need to retain, you got to get build up your strength. You've got to build up your your resources, your 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 health, your spiritual health, your emotional, physical health, and then you can 
go back out into the rapids again and and go. So I, I'd say that these stories introduce ideas that I think are available to anybody for some of the this what what he would call is a very difficult journey ahead. Mm, really beautiful and. Like you mentioned, without a proper word to describe this time that we're in, I know a lot of people feel like we're in limbo, like we shouldn't be here, so we should try to get out of this place as soon as possible. But when there is a proper word to describe this sort of place that we're in, we're kind of acknowledged for this place as being an integral part of this long journey that we're on. And coming full circle to close, for you as a geographer, artist, naturalist, mother, writer, and citizen, when you weave all of your learnings together and also your collaborations with Cecil, what are the key takeaways you'd like our listener to walk away with here? And what calls to action do you have for us? My current really important focus is also another teaching of Cecil's, which is to is the valuable role of mentoring. Our humanity has grown and developed and become what it is through intergenerational conversations. And when I say mentoring, I mean mentoring that goes both ways. So I've been spending a lot of time. I have two sons. I have they have a lot of friends. I've been a teacher, you know, in the university and at the and I have a I teach at a little local school for 10-year-old boys. <laughs> where I learn an enormous amount. So mentoring for me, I think, is a really, and I'm speaking now to my generation. Uh, I don't like, I don't like the word because I, I think it demeans us in a way. But the boomer generation, I think, missed out on some kind of mentoring for whatever reason, and I don't know if we're that good at it. But I really think that engaging in conversations, doing, supporting the, the next generation, listening, um, doing a little less of our own uh, stuff and a little more community stuff is an area that I'd really like to try and, and work in. Because I think there's such potential for an older generation who have, you know, we have houses, we have a little bit more time. We have resources. We can we can create spaces for people that are starting off on their journey and and, and give them the emotional support, the um, opportunities. We can, in whatever way we can. I think that that to me is one of the the big big things that I'd like to work on more and more is is to encourage my generation to mentor. And the other thing I I think. I'd, I'd really want to encourage and, and kind of highlight some more is that, I mean, and I certainly learned this with Cecil, and, and I certainly learned this from my mother, who was, had a Welsh background, which was also very, very respectful of a, a form of spirituality with the natural world that I think is, is, you know, has been hidden, but we shouldn't diminish and that's that when you when you start forming relationships in the natural world with other people, with people that don't share your worldview sometimes, you get these amazing, meaningful moments of, of what I think it was Carl Jung called it synchronicity, but Cecil would call it magic, where just things happen and, and suddenly you realize, oh yeah, you know what, it, this was meant to be, I'm on the right path because there's these beautiful overlaps and and 
you know, you say one thing and then suddenly that, that, that animal appears or that person appears and then there's a, a connection. And so when you've widened your community, you've got all these more potential for intersections. And, and those are the, those are the, the, the synchronicities that I'm talking about. And they're also what give us meaning because you just suddenly think, Oh, I'm totally on, I must be on the right path because everything seems to be clicking. And so those are my two is, is the beauty and the meaningfulness of synchronicity. And that can only happen when you slow down. And so for people that are in COVID and are just like, ah, oh, trying to get some meaning, get outside, go in and start. If you can try and, and if you can't read more about your local, your place and all its history and and start connecting with other generations and that's when the magic starts well green dreamer if you want to learn more and stay updated on bryony's artwork writing and books you can head to www.bryonypen.com that's spelled b-r-i-o-n-y-p-e-n-n.com Bryony, we appreciate you so much and thank you for sharing your inspirations and learning lessons with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep doing what you're doing. I think educating yourself is just incredible and and, uh, make sure you go to your place and get outside and, and dream. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show and find our independent platform valuable, we'd love to have your direct support on Patreon starting at just a tip of $2 at greendreamer.com support. As our fall season is nearing its close with episode 280 and we're working hard to prepare for the launch of our winter season, your support will go a really long way in ensuring that we're able to continue this work and keep exploring these critical yet often sidelined topics. So again, it's greendreamer.com support for whatever you're able to gift to us at Green Dreamer. Today's song feature is Stay by Burn. And I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you and your support so much. Please take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. In your eyes, you see me fighting for life. No surprise, I see you walking my way. All this time, I've been shining a light.